0: Amen. Could you take the Word of God with me? And um, we'll turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 10. Luke, Chapter 10. How many of you are glad that I didn't finish my notes from this morning? <laughs> I'm sure you're all glad. That would have been a very uh, long sermon. Uh, we're going to be continue where we left off. This morning with the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, we didn't even quite get to the story yet. Uh, this morning we looked at the setup of this parable. Uh, and you'll remember that this uh, arrogant, self-righteous lawyer he, he stands up uh, to tempt the Lord Jesus, to, to test him. Uh, he doesn't come with a sincere uh, heart wanting to really hear from the Lord Jesus. He already has his mind made up. But he asks the Lord in verse 25, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this morning uh, we saw that when this man was faced with the demands of God's holy law, to, to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself, instead of falling before the Lord Jesus in humility, acknowledging his total inability to to earn favor with God, to meet the holy demands of God's law. Instead of humbling himself, uh, this man sought to justify himself, uh, sought to find a way to make himself righteous, uh, sought to find a loophole in the law. And so he asks the Lord Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's thinking there are certain people that I don't love, that I don't want to love, that I've never loved. And so In order for me to keep the law, I'm going to have to find some loophole. And so he asks the Lord Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is it that I have to love? Who is it that is worthy of my love? And then the Lord Jesus gives this parable. And so let's read the parable together. Uh, We'll begin reading in verse 30. Let's do it responsively. I'll read verse 30, you verse 31, so on and so forth, all the way through verse 37. Uh, And then men... Uh, in the front and middle if if you could help lead this and and try to stay together but I'll begin reading in verse 30 the Bible says and Jesus answering said a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed leaving him half dead and by chance there came down Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he mercy on him. Then Jesus unto him, grow, and do thou likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're coming to you now with our Bibles open. Uh, what we're looking at right here, its it's your word. This is from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. And although he uttered these words a long time ago, they are still so relevant to us today. And Father, you've gathered us in this place. And uh, here we are, over two or three of us have gathered together in Christ's name and we know that he is in our midst. And Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you would invite us uh, to come before you and to hear directly from your word. Father, we understand that uh, the truths that we're about to look at are spiritual in nature and that without your Holy Spirit uh, enabling the preacher and working in each heart, uh, we won't get it. Uh, We'll miss it. Uh, We'll miss what you have to say to us. And so we pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work uh, in our midst. Lord, every time we open Your Word, these truths have the power to transform not only our lives but the lives of those around us. And so we pray that Your Spirit would do that transformative work tonight. Please guide my tongue, give me the words to say. Lord, we thank You that when we ask for these type of things in Christ's name, that You promise to grant them to us. And so we're looking forward uh, to hearing from You tonight. And Having you change us, Lord, make us more like the Lord Jesus. Lift him up in our midst now, we pray in his name. Amen. This morning, we looked at the setup of this parable. And remember, it's very important. If you're going to rightly divide the scripture and interpret parables, you need to pay a lot of attention to the setup, to the context in which the story was given. And so the whole sermon this morning was spent on that. uh, And now we, we transition into looking at the story itself, uh, the story. And so if you're taking notes, that would be the first heading, uh, the story. As we read this account, this parable of Christ, uh, this story, we come first to the unarmed traveler, the unarmed traveler. In verse 30, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now you have to understand, Jerusalem uh, was situated on a mountain, Mount Zion. So it's got a pretty high elevation. Now, not compared to some of our mountains here in BC, uh, but Jerusalem, it's on a mountain. Uh, but Jericho is the opposite. Uh, for a long time, there are even signs in Jericho that call it the lowest point on the earth. I haven't done extensive research. There may be a lower point, uh, but it's pretty low. Uh, 260 meters or 850 feet uh, below sea level. Uh, is the city of Jericho. So it's below sea level. And so this man was traveling uh, from a place of great height, uh, Mount Zion, down to Jericho. And people knew that it was a dangerous journey. Robbers were known uh, to hide by the wayside and attack people on their way to Jericho. But for whatever reason, this man, he's traveling alone uh, and apparently unarmed, or if he was armed, he didn't wasn't able to put up much of a fight. Uh, and he is attacked there, stripped of his raiment, wounded, and left half dead. Uh, I, love the, I love the way the scripture says things. Half dead means pretty soon you're going to be totally dead. And that's where we find this man. He's unarmed. He's traveling to Jericho, and he's attacked. Then next in the story, you find the unfeeling twosome. So there's this pair of men, they're not traveling together, uh, but they're quite unfeeling. Look at verse 31. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, when he saw this man lying on the ground, dying in desperate need of medical attention, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He didn't care one bit that this man desperately needed help. He saw him, and he passed by on the other side. Then verse 32, likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. This man, it seems, was a little more curious. He got close enough to really take a good look at this dying man to examine the situation, but it's the same thing. He just passes by on the other side. These two men just did not care uh, that this man who'd been left for dead desperately needed their help. And then thirdly, in the story, you find the unlikely teammate, the unlikely teammate. Now, most of us are familiar with the context of this. Uh, Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. Uh, but I love uh, how when you study scripture, uh, stories are given to you in sequence. And in just the chapter prior to this, we get a window into the heart of not people like the lawyer and, and the religious leaders today into the heart of Christ's very disciples. And we get a little glimpse of how they felt about the Samaritans. Uh, look at verse 52 of Luke 9. Christ sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem and when his disciples, James and John, and these aren't just any disciples, these are part of Christ's inner three, when they saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? Now, Pastor Yeh's brought up this point in FBI. There were other cities that rejected Christ, other Jewish cities, uh, but nowhere else in the gospels do you see the disciples requesting that, that Jesus would call down fire from heaven to destroy people. These disciples cared nothing for the Samaritans. And to see them reject the Lord, they, they wanted vengeance over, over this mongrel group of people, uh, these, these Samaritans, and so they asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven and consume them all. These are the disciples. And if they were that bold to ask the Lord Jesus to call down fire from heaven, you can imagine what this self-righteous, arrogant lawyer what he was thinking when the Lord Jesus made the hero of his story a Samaritan. I mean, he must have been flabbergasted. And yet of all the people passing by that way, it's a Samaritan that helps this Jewish man. It's an unlikely person, not who you would expect. That's the story. And there's some important symbolism and some truths that I believe we should take from this. So let's notice the symbolism in this parable. Number one, the unarmed traveler, I believe he pictures the unregenerate, the unregenerate. An unregenerate person is someone who's not yet born again. Uh, they're lost. They're unsaved. The list of people that we're praying for, for gospel and goodies, they would be unregenerate. Uh, they don't yet know Christ. They're, they're, they don't have eternal life. And you know they're not a lot different from this man, spiritually, because John 10, 10 tells us the thief, the devil, cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. That is the devil's object in every single person's life on this planet, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And on the outside, people may look like they have it all together, may look like they have wealth. But when the devil is at work in a person's life, when they have not yet received Christ, their life uh, is spiritually dead. And they're much like this man lying on the side of the road, hopeless and half dead. You remember in Ephesians 2, we're reminded of what we were before we were saved. We were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And then it goes on and says, you are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And verse 12 of that same chapter, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. This man lying on the side of the road was without hope. A priest had passed by. You think of all people, God's man would help him, but nope. A Levi passes by, a custodian of the law. You think he'll help him? And nope. And by the time those people pass him up, this man has lost all hope. But you know, that is the situation of every lost person in Burnaby who doesn't have a gospel witness in their life. They're lost. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They can't seek God on their own. There's nothing in them that even wants God. They're hopeless. They're dying. They're already dead. Do you realize that once you get past about probably 40 years of age, it's just a long, slow death from there? (laughs) I mean, think about it. Aging is a daily reminder that we're going to die. It's the truth. And it's a reminder that inside, we're spiritually dead. And that is the state of of every unbeliever, every unregenerate person. I believe that's what this man pictures. But then number two, the unfeeling twosome, these two religious men, they represent the religious. I heard a preacher, he put it this way. The priest, he represents religion with its rituals. The priest, he would work around the temple and perform all the ceremonial functions The Levite, who was a custodian of God's law, he represents religion with its rules. The Levite that passed by, uh, no doubt he knew the scriptures, a custodian of the law. But neither of these men cared one bit about the man dying on the road, and neither of them saved this man from his terrible lost and dying condition. And we mentioned it this morning, but it's worth repeating. Religion never saved anybody. And it never will. And these men, what was their problem? Was their problem that they they didn't know the Bible? No, these men knew the Bible. Was their problem that they just weren't raised in the right environment? No, they, were, they had the best opportunity to know God. But these men's problem was that they had no genuine love for their creator, and so they had no love for their fellow creature. And you can have religion, and you can go through the motions, and you can perform the ceremonies, and you can keep some of the rules, and your heart can be totally away from God. These men's religion, it couldn't even save them from their own selfishness. And this parable teaches us that a person's pedigree yeah, I mean, a priest and a Levite or a person's religious duties do not gain them merit with God, nor will they ever save anyone. But lastly here, the unlikely teammate, this good Samaritan, he pictures our Redeemer, our Lord. Romans 5, verse 8 and 10. 8 through 10. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In verse 10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Put yourself in the Samaritan's shoes. You're passing by a man who's who's dying there. He was foolish enough to travel on a road known to have robbers. He's stripped of his raiment. So that tells me that there's a good chance maybe he was rich because you don't rob clothes typically unless they're nice okay so he's this rich jewish man likely uh, with apparently not a lot upstairs he was traveling alone unarmed and the samaritan walks by this man who has grown up hating him grown up despising his people grown up avoiding uh, the presence of any kind of samaritan And this Samaritan of all people, look at how he responds in verse 34, verse 33, 3. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. And Christian, will you remember before you got saved? And will you look back to the moment when you were without God, without hope, when you didn't care to know God, when you were his enemy, and when he saw you in that condition, he had compassion on you. And he loved you and he went to you and and like the Samaritan did here, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. We've got to remember, it, it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or if everyone in your life thought you were a good little kid or just a really upstanding person, God saw who we really were on the inside. And with all the sin and wickedness inside our hearts even though we were god's enemy he looked on us in that condition with compassion and with love and rescued us from our dying condition now we've seen the setup we've seen the story and then finally let's look at the sermon the sermon what is the point of this story Uh, christ isn't just trying to entertain He's trying to drive home a point to this lawyer and and to drive a point home to our lives. And it's a, a good rule of thumb with most parables that there's one main point that the Lord is trying to teach. There may be many applications, there may be many other lessons, but there's one main point that Christ is trying to get across. And what is he trying to communicate here? Well, look, after he gives this parable, he puts a question to the lawyer. Which now of these three, verse 36, thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? So this sermon, the the point of what he's uh, giving this parable, number one, he gives this man a correction, a correction. He's trying to get this man to see that your original question, who is my neighbor? Who is worthy of my love? He's trying to get him to see that's the wrong question because when faced with the lofty demands of god's law what the lawyer wanted to do is somehow lower the bar to somehow make god's commands god's expectations more palatable more doable and i'm afraid to say that this same mentality of the lawyer is rampant in christianity today We're faced with the demands of Scripture. We're faced with what it means to be a true disciple of Christ, that it involves cross-bearing and denying ourselves and forsaking all to follow Christ. We're faced with the demands, instead of humbly becoming totally dependent on the Lord Jesus and His Spirit to live in a way that's pleasing to God, we decide instead to just lower the bar. And this is how it shows up in our lives. Too many of us as Christians are asking the wrong questions. We could rephrase the, the lawyer's question. And basically what he's asking is, what's the bare minimum that I have to do in order for God to be happy with me? The bare minimum. I mean, who are the people that I have to love? Who is my neighbor? The couple people that I just have to make myself love. What's the bare minimum I can do to make God happy with me? And isn't that how so many Christians approach their Christian life? What are the the few boxes that I have to check up, check off so that God is happy with me and so that he can bless me and so that I can then go my merry way and do whatever I please? What's the bare minimum I have to do? People ask questions like this. What commands of God do I have to obey so that I can just get on with my life and do what I want without feeling guilty? Or, Or this one. I hate this question. Uh, This is not the right question, Christian. Uh, This is the type of question that the lawyer was asking. A, A person wants to do something that they know in their heart is wrong or that they've been taught is wrong, and they say, where in the Bible does it say that this is sin? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that question. And it's the wrong question. Because we're not going through this life as Christians saying, What's the least amount I can do for for God? And what's the most amount of things I can do that aren't explicitly condemned in scripture? That is not the question that we ask when we approach our Christian life because God wants us to approve things that are excellent. And instead of us asking, what's the bare minimum that I have to do for God in order for him to be happy? Or where in the Bible does it say this is sin? Why don't we begin asking God, what is your best for me? What is your best for my family? What is your best for the, for the people in my life that you want me to reach with the gospel? And Christian, can I urge you, quit asking the wrong question. It's not about what's the bare minimum I can do. God wants your heart. And he's not looking for us to check off a few boxes and then go our merry way with our heart unchanged. He wants us to love him with all of our being. And Christian, the Lord Jesus looks this man in the face and he says, which now of these three men, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which now of these three, thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves. And when it's all said and done, and we stand before God at his judgment, it's going to be this same question. Who lived a life pleasing to me? Who was a good neighbor? Who did fulfill the demands of my holy law? And there's not going to be one person who, who's able to answer that question in the affirmative but the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what that means for us? That the only way our lives can be pleasing to God in any respect is in their conformity to Christ himself. And in Christ living his life through us. But but so many of us as Christians, we've adopted this lawyers mentality, this this religious idea that I can on my own just check a few boxes, just obey a few rules and make God happy with me and that's it. And we're asking the wrong question. We have the wrong goal. Christ gives this man a correction. This is the sermon. And then number two, he gives him a command. Verse 37, the the lawyer answers, he that showed mercy on him and Christ is the only one who has ever pleased God and only those in Christ and and living in conformity to him can please the Lord. And then notice verse 37, then said Jesus unto him, here's the command, go and do thou likewise. Christian, if you don't hear anything else in this sermon, could you please take this down? And if you don't have a pen, could you at least write it in your heart? The only, the only goal for a Christian's life The only goal is Christ's likeness It's the only goal. Anything less will never be pleasing to God, never. It is only in our conformity to the Lord Jesus and our dependence on him on a daily basis can our lives bring the glory to God that they were intended to bring. God assesses our spiritual lives based on our conformity to Christ. You know what else we see from this passage? God assesses our love for him based on our love for other human beings. You see, the problem with the priest and the Levite is that God was just this distant creator, this rule maker to them, and if they checked off a few boxes, they could make him happy without ever really having any love relationship with him. And when that is your idea of God, you will not see people as as human beings made in his image worthy of your love. But when you get God in his rightful place and begin loving him like you ought to, then we will begin to love others. And talk is cheap. We can say, I love God. But when God looks in our life, he asks, are you being a real neighbor are you loving like this man in the parable? Because this is conformity to Christ's life. How did Christ prove his love to the Father? John 10, verse 17 through 18. Therefore, doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. What did God command his Son to come and earn? come to earth to do? To love humanity. And that is how the Lord Jesus proved his love back to the Father, by loving the people he came to save. And it's not going to be any different for us. There's no other way that we can truly and finally and completely prove our love for God, but by loving our fellow man. 1 John 4 verses 20 through 21, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. And to let someone go to an awful place called hell without warning them and without telling them how they can be saved is akin to hating that person. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now, Christian, when we, when we look at a parable like this and we see the type of love that God expects of his people, a, a love like this Samaritan to, who loves someone who hated him, next week we're going to look more at all the practical applications of how the Samaritan loved this man. But let me tell you, the only way we are ever going to get to the point where we love like this is when we realize who we are in the parable. And when you and I realize that we are the wounded man, that we are the one who, who, who was a hater of Christ and an enemy of him, and he rescued us out of our sin and loved us when we don't deserve it, it's when that begins to grip us, like we saw last week when God opens our eyes to the love us of the cross, then and only then will we begin to love others as we ought. This is what John was getting at in 1 John 3, verse 17 through 18. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. That's how we know God loves us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? How is this world going to know that God loves them by receiving his love through us? And this Christmas, we have a tremendous opportunity to show people Christ's love by sharing the gospel with them, but by giving them gifts, thoughtful gifts, that we we took time to think about uh, what would show them love. And, and that's how they're going to see God's love, by us being neighbors like this. But Christian, let's not make the mistake that we can somehow conjure this up on our own or force ourselves to love people like this, it's only as you see Christ's love for you and become so engulfed in his love that you're going to be able to love like this. And it's only as we are daily depending on the indwelling Christ, his indwelling spirit, that we are ever going to be neighbors like this. But if you and I will get up every day remembering the cross, Christ's great love for us, and depending on him and asking him, God, I I know I don't have it in my heart to love my family like I should or my coworkers or the people in my life, but I know Christ does. And so would you help me today to love people like he loves me? And if you'll take time daily to reflect on his love for you and then depend on his power working through you, you and I can live like this good Samaritan. And we can be a good neighbor. And Lord, and... and And child of God, understand, everyone around us who does not know Christ is like this wounded man. They're helpless. They're hurting. They're in need. And we have the great privilege of bringing God's love to them and rescuing them like this good Samaritan did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this parable and the truths that you've taught us. Lord, I pray that you would drive home these truths to our heart, that any goal short of conforming to Christ is the wrong goal. But Lord, help us understand that you work with us day by day. And Lord, you're not expecting us to leave this building tonight and be perfect and have it all figured out. But Lord, you do expect us to understand what the goal is. And Lord, I pray that we would all leave here with this goal in our hearts, asking you, God, would you Would you make us more like your son? Would you help us to be like this neighbor? Lord, would you put that desire in our hearts? Would you put that that desperation inside us to have Christ live through us? And would you use us this Christmas to be a good neighbor, uh, to show people Christ's love like Christ has shown us? Father, please drive home these truths in our hearts. Help us to dwell on them and meditate on them. And Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves in this parable and see Christ's great love for us. Lord, please bless this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.